0: I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week we're talking
1: about a Supreme Court decision in a trademark case, the 75th anniversary of the Fighting Words case, and we'll interview Ilya Shapiro, a First Amendment expert, about Howard Dean and hate speech.
0: So the Supreme Court issued a couple of important First Amendment uh, decisions this week. The first one is a case involving an Asian American band called the Slants. So they are what they call uh, self-described Chinatown dance rock, and they sought a trademark of their name. Uh, but the Patent Office denied their application for a trademark, citing a provision of f- a federal law known as the Lanham Act that prohibits registration of trademarks that may disparage someone. So. Like many other bands, the, the Slants chose their name purposefully because it was kind of poking fun at stereotypes about Asian Americans. This is in line with a, you know, long tradition of, of bands such as the Dead Kennedys, which is a kind of a political satire, or the Dropkick Murphys, which is a reference to, uh, this, this old sanitarium where, uh, where people will go to dry out, um, from benders and, you know, kind of poking fun at, at the stereotype that, uh, you know, the Irish are all drunks. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, the, the band has, uh, poked fun at, at these stereotypes with several of their albums, including Slanted Eyes, Slanted Hearts, The Yellow Album, and Something Slanted This Way Comes. But most recently, their, their latest album in 2017 was entitled The Band Who Must Not Be Named. And this was because of their, their battle with the government over whether they could trademark uh, trademark the name The Slants. So a, a federal trademark, basically, it, it allows them to invoke federal remedies in protect in preventing others from selling merchandise or services with that name so it is a you know protection that they they really wanted to have so they took their their case to federal court and it went all the way to the supreme court and in an, in an opinion by justice alito he wrote that Uh, This offends a bedrock First Amendment principle. Speech may not be banned on the ground that it expresses ideas that offend. So this uh, decision continues in a trend of cases where the Supreme Court has extended First Amendment protection to what some would call offensive speech. These include cases involving burning crosses, animal crush videos, violent video games, lying about military honors, and, of course, the famous Westboro Baptist Church, uh, which protested at military funerals, and they uh, were vindicated in their right to do that. So, in the case, the government argued that it uh, it, it was basically—this is government speech, not private speech here with a trademark. But the court rejected that argument, saying that slapping the government's seal of approval on speech could lead to censorship. It could lead to silencing or muffling of expression of disfavored viewpoints. I also don't know what the government would be trying to say
1: when it— you know, was speaking using using these.
0: These trademarks, Names, yeah. yeah, and Alito kind of pokes fun at, at the government's argument here, uh, and he pointed out a number of, of trademarks and asked, you know, what was the government trying to com- convey to Americans with trademarks like, just do it, which is Nike, or have it your way with Burger King, or think different with Apple. Uh, so uh, the court went through examples of actual government speech, such as advertisements promoting the sale of beef that Congress had authorized and the Department of Agriculture actually paid for. That's government speech. Monuments that are donated to uh, public parks, government speech speech And in, in a case just a few terms ago, license plates issued by states, specialty license plates, that's also government speech. So in those instances... They were saying that uh, the speech is closely identified in the public mind with the government, whereas with a trademark, you would have no idea that it's connected to the government. So this case has important implications for another case that we've been watching closely. The Washington Redskins lost six of their trademarks in 2014 uh, because the the patent office said that, that their name was offensive to Native Americans. I would point out that the Washington Post did a poll last year that found 9 in 10 Native Americans do not find the name offensive. So now this case was on hold at the lower court, and uh, their, their fantastic lawyer, uh, our, our favorite liberal at the Heritage Foundation, <laughs> Lisa Blatt, went to court, filed, filed a letter explaining why the court had to rule for them uh, and, and, uh, and reverse the lower court decision that had upheld the, uh, upheld the government's canceling of all these trademarks. So we're going to keep an eye on what happens there. The other First Amendment case this week um, was Packingham versus North Carolina. And this was a decision dealing with the state of North Carolina made it a law, uh, made it a felony for registered sex offenders to access social networking websites that minors could become members of. So they said this violates the First Amendment free speech clause. Uh, You know, on the one hand, you can understand why states might want to try to limit what sex offenders can do in their contact with minors. But the court said this was just way too broad uh, and it, it prevented sex offenders basically from going on the internet at all. Now, uh, Justice Kennedy wrote the majority opinion. Justice Alito concurred in the judgment in pretty strong terms. Uh, It almost read a little bit like a dissent, although he concurred in the, the underlying ruling, saying that the majority was unable to resist musings that seemed to equate the entirety of the internet with public streets and parks, and that this would have troubling implications for states that are trying to protect minors.
1: Um, So we're introducing a new segment this week called SCOTUS Anniversaries. So this year is the 75th anniversary of Chaplinsky um, against New Hampshire, a 1942 case about fighting words. Um, So New Hampshire um, had a law that made it illegal to say, quote, any offensive, derisive or annoying word to anyone who is lawfully in any... A street or public place or to call him by an offensive or derisive name. I think annoying is my, my favorite part. Um, <laughs>
0: There's a lot of annoying things I hear <laughs> on the street. <laughs> yeah,
1: No kidding. Um, so Walter Toplinski, he was a Jehovah's Witness. He was on a public sidewalk um, preaching. There was a big crowd around him making a fuss. They were blocking the road. Um, so the cops showed up and told him to you know quiet down. Um, and he called the city marshal a goddamned racketeer and a damned fascist. I'm sorry, we didn't have a trigger Warning for any snowflakes that are listening to this episode. we don't do that here. Um, So he was arrested and challenged the law as a violation of his First Amendment rights. The court unanimously disagreed with him and said the First Amendment um, didn't protect him in this case because he used fighting words. Um, And uh, the court defined those words as those which by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite immediate breach of the peace. Um, So they were careful to say, you know, this is a well-defined and narrowly limited class of speech. Um, It's not just those things that, you know, could incite violence, but those are that are inherently likely to provoke a violent reaction. Um, So that brings us uh, to our next segment and our interview segment with Ilya Shapiro. Um, Thanks for being here, Ilya. Ilya is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. And editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review He's a prolific writer and speaker About a host of legal issues And he's filed more than 200 amicus briefs At the Supreme Court
2: Good to be on. And, you know, uh, Elizabeth, I, I almost jumped in when you were talking about the musical acts and, and so forth because, uh, gosh, we had a whole bunch in our brief. I'm glad I didn't jump in because most of them certainly aren't uh, safe for uh, uh, the sensitive ears of uh, even non-Snowflake podcast listeners, I think. We really pushed the envelope in our brief. And also, I, I, I haven't fully researched this, but I believe we're the only Supreme Court brief ever to have printed a full-color beer label in our brief. <laughs>
0: I saw that. And we'll, we'll get to that in the- a little bit. So, back in April, former DNC chairman and one-time presidential candidate Howard Dean tweeted that hate speech is not protected by the First Amendment. This was in response to Berkeley canceling speaking engagements with Ann Coulter and Milo Yiannopoulos, both of which are very controversial and provocative speakers. So, first off, Ilya, does Howard Dean have a leg to stand on?
2: Well, Yeah! <laughs> Actually, no, that wasn't that was an endorsement. Uh, You know, I never understood why his scream disqualified him from being, uh, you know, the Democratic presidential nominee in 2004 showed his excitement. I I, I think he would have made a better candidate than John Kerry, but I guess that's water under the bridge. Uh, No, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. There's there's. Uh, For some reason, uh, it's not simply the attitude on college campuses that hate speech shouldn't be protected by the Constitution, but it's apparently conventional wisdom that it's not protected by the Constitution, and not even on campuses. I mean, I don't know what Howard Dean's excuse is. He's not a 19-year-old, you know, insulated uh, millennial who's been, you know, helicopter parents have sheltered him from real-world experiences. So, no, either him or the, uh, the Portland mayor, whoever their legal advisors are, maybe they need to spend more time paying attention to them.
1: So most of this started on, on Twitter when he tweeted these things out, and it's it was hilarious. The legal community on Twitter just went after him, both on the left and the right. Um, and I, I'm
2: guilty of that as well
1: <laughs> he still didn't uh, you know he doubled down, look down up
2: and he case. started invo- he invoked uh, Chaplinsky <laughs> yeah uh, I mean for one thing hate speech has nothing to do with 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 uh, fighting words uh, for another to get really technical uh, legally speaking nobody really knows what Chaplinsky stands for anymore there hasn't been a you know Chaplinsky related prosecution or kind of holding based on Chaplinsky in quite some time uh, but yeah uh, certainly um, fighting words uh, even to to the extent that it's uh, understandable, means that uh, you say something that imminently no reasonable person could resist uh, attacking you at that (laughs) point. Uh, So, uh, you know, uh, maybe some, uh, you know, uh, just uh, uh, generally not directionally uh, saying something that someone finds offensive does not qualify. (laughs)
0: So as you mentioned, uh, Cato filed a brief in the Slants case, talking about how this disparagement clause is unconstitutionally vague, and you highlighted some examples. You alluded to the beer label, which is for uh, for one of my favorite beers. Uh, it's called Raging Bitch. Sorry, uh, sorry for the PC crowd. But could you give us a few of uh, a few of the most interesting examples of these sorts of uh, offensive names that are maybe appropriate for a podcast uh, listening audience? You know, I when I was looking at uh, band names this morning. I found some very extensive lists on the internet of, um, you know, very detailed and and offensive uh, band names that I really don't want to get into the details of. But I was hoping you could highlight maybe a few from your brief.
2: Sure. I mean, we didn't focus on the vagueness issue. Uh, We kind of talked about the importance of disparaging or uh, boundary-pushing speech to uh, public discourse uh, in general and how, regardless, the government shouldn't be the one uh, deciding what's uh, too offensive uh, or not. And and sort of doing the research that didn't make it into our, our brief, I don't think um uh, i think the the, uh, the the trademark office rejected uh, Republicans are devils, but allowed the registration of Satan is a Democrat. So, you know, uh, or, v- and 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 this one I, th- I think is pushing on, well, but Nina Totenberg allowed me to say it on, on NPR. Uh, uh, the capitalism sucks donkey balls is, uh, is registered. Or oh, wow. take your panties off. Again, this was on National Public Radio. Uh, so uh, for one thing, how is that government speech? I mean, that, you know, really is the United States government saying this? Uh, but another, yeah, if those are registered or, as the Redskins in Lisa Blatt's brief, she has a wonderful 19-page appendix with all these ridiculous things that have been registered. Much more weirder and ruder than the slants. But things like uh, Yard Apes Landscaping Services, Afro-Saxons, and Dago Swag Clothing, Baked by a Negro Baked Goods, Crippled Old, old Biker Bastards Clothing, kraka as Skateboards. I mean, all these things. It's, it's really, uh, once you get into it, uh, you see why uh, the government lost you. Unanimously.
0: Really, uh, truly pushing the
1: envelope there. <laughs> yeah. So basically, SCOTUS uh, settled the matter in this case for ruling um, for the slants. Yeah, right? and, I, and
2: I don't see any any daylight between this case and the Redskins. They rejected the argument that one amicus brief had made that, well, you look at the subjective motivations. The slants were so-called taking it back, uh, reappropriating this slur, whereas the Redskins were slurring someone else. No, the Supreme Court said we're not going to do that sort of thing. So I think, uh, but really, how you solve the Redskins is uh, they should keep the name and change the mascot to just a smiling red bliss potato, I think that would take care of the whole thing.
0: <laughs> I have heard that as a suggestion. As a, as a Redskins fan, I, I don't like the idea that we'd be represented by an image of a potato. Um, so there, there, as I mentioned earlier, there's been a trend in the Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence towards increasingly providing protection for so-called offensive speech, cross-burning, animal crush videos, uh, so on. And of course, the the case from a few years ago of the aspiring rapper Tone Dougie, whose Facebook post got him into trouble because he posted about uh, wanting to kill his wife, blowing up an FBI agent, and other things, um, but he said that they were just rap One of it.
2: his lawyers became, who's a, a rap uh, a scholar at the University of Richmond, uh, <laughs> is one of my basket of deplorable people and organizations that joined my brief, actually.
0: <laughs> so, what do you think the outer limit is here? What kind of speech you know is still unprotected
2: um well, there's a division on the court regarding, ironically, political speech in the campaign finance area and speech relating to worker rights versus unions. Aside from that, it seems that this court, the Roberts Court, is the most pro-free speech court we've ever had. Um, all those things that you listed, most of those cases were unanimous or maybe one or two dissents. Um, you, know, if, if, you know, there, there might be some—we're getting into the digital age where we'll have some probably weird cases involving virtual representation. Although, even for, for child pornography, the court ruled this is now, gosh, almost 20 years ago, in an opinion by Justice Ren- Chief Justice Rehnquist, I believe, that virtual child porn uh, could not be uh, restricted because no child was literally being hurt uh, when it's virtually created. So, uh, again, the court is uh, is very favorable towards us. Now, a question is, what happens uh, in the next generation? Because the court tries not to get too far ahead or behind public opinion. So, if we have all these snowflakes who graduate— and start attaining positions of leadership in our society, uh, both culturally and politically, uh, will there be a shift in terms of uh, what's acceptable and, and what's not?
1: Um, what do you think the future is for handing out pocket constitutions on college campuses? Um, that's apparently not allowed at a community college in Michigan, I believe. Um, the students on Constitution Day were were prohibited. Well, well from I can see that rule
2: being in, I, I can see that rule being in place in California, but in America, I think <laughs> it would be difficult. Uh, I mean, seriously, this this is 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 uh, quite literally the the reductio ad absurdum, the the most absurd example of uh, uh, an obvious. Uh, invalid restriction based on the First Amendment. Uh, to, you know, to say that you you can't give out these pamphlets, this is not a, uh, you know, th- there can be time, place, and manner restrictions. You People can't just run into a professor's lecture and <laughs> disturb it by tossing out constitutions or anything else. Um, just like, uh, I believe strongly in political speech, but I think a town can pass an ordinance saying you can't go down the, the a quiet residential neighborhood at 3 a.m., blaring your political slogans out of a out of a megaphone. So you can have those kinds of restrictions. Uh, But certainly the idea that the the Constitution can't be distributed because it can offend people of all reasons, you know, just absurd.
0: So final question. If you could be a Supreme Court justice for one day, what case would you overrule? We have our we have our thoughts.
2: Uh, it's it's Wickard versus Filburn, uh, which in in 1942 allowed the federal government to regulate even uh, local economic and potentially non economic uh, activity um, under the interstate commerce clause because of the knee bone is connected to the shin bone theory of constitutional <laughs> interpretation. Uh, that is, if you don't regulate a farmer growing wheat in his backyard, uh, if you don't, uh, if, the, if the price controls don't affect that, well, that uh, on the aggregate nationally affects the uh, interstate state pricing scheme that Congress was trying to put uh, in place. And uh, this has, uh, more than anything else, uh, more than any one singular moment, has allowed the federal government to grow into the out-of-control behemoth that it now is.
0: That's a a great choice. So we're going to wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, First Amendment edition, where we're going to try to stump our guest, Ilya Shapiro. Are you ready?
2: Ready as I'll ever be.
0: First question, what Supreme Court case incorporated the free speech clause of the First Amendment against the states?
2: Good Lord, I should know this. I think the incorporation doctrine is a constitutional (laughs) malapropism because of the Supreme Court's evisceration of the privileges and immunities clause or immunities clause in uh, the slaughterhouse cases. So, you know, that one's not even in my working memory. I'm going to have to pass on that one.
0: (laughs) It's uh, Gitlow versus New York, 1925. Benjamin Gitlow challenged his conviction for distributing a socialist manifesto in violation of New York's law that punished advocacy to overthrow the government. This was one of the early cases incorporating part of the Bill of rights against the states through the 14th Amendment. Gitlow lost his case, uh, but through this and other cases, several parts of the Bill of Rights now apply against the states, and as well as the federal government, including, most recently, the Second Amendment, which I know you're familiar with that one.
1: (laughs) Okay, second question. Which justice dissented from a case where the court struck down the federal law criminalizing videos of people crushing animals? That was Justice
2: Alito. Um,
1: Ding,
0: ding, 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 ding!
2: Because... uh, he thought that uh, there were certain things that uh, I think that a, that a civilized society can allow, that this uh, you know, crushing animals is not speech. Uh, am I getting close to his rationale?
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. So um, it was Justice Alito in U.S. v. Stevens, a case from 2010, um, and he dissented because, in his view, the court didn't need to strike down the law in its entirety. Um, he thought there was still constitutional application of the law.
0: Third question. What Supreme Court case involved a televangelist suing Hustler over fake ads depicting him as a drunk, incestuous and immoral?
2: That was uh, Flint versus Hustler Magazine. Wasn't Flint. It?
0: Flint Flint was the the publisher the telev- of Hustler.
2: Sorry? Flint yes. is oh, the Oh, yeah, right, 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 right. So it was uh...
0: first name's Jerry. Last name also starts with an F.
2: Falwell, that's yes, right that's there right, that's you right, go right. Falwell, there yeah, you yeah, go
0: yeah, yeah. this is hustler magazine versus follow 1988 case Jerry Falwell sued the magazine for intentional infliction of emotional distress after it ran a series of very raunchy ads about him the court ruled in favor of the magazine since follow was a public figure and the parodies of him could not reasonably have been interpreted as fact uh, there's a pretty entertaining movie about the case the people vs Larry Flint starring Woody Harrelson as uh, as the uh, publisher of Hustler magazine and Edward Norton as his lawyer Years later, I read, when I was doing a little research for this, um, I read that Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint actually started debating each other on college campuses on topics including free speech and morality, and they actually became friends.
1: Very interesting. Okay, final question. Which former solicitor general said at oral argument that the government could ban books for election-related speech published too close to an election, but assured the court that it wouldn't do that just just because?
2: Um, Well, actually... Uh, you're thinking of Elena Kagan, but she didn't say that. On re-argument, uh, she said that in, uh, in, our, uh, in our reconsidered uh, position, the government can't do that for what – I forget how she exactly sliced it. I think because uh, books aren't pamphlets or, or something like that. But uh, uh, it was actually the uh, the, the deputy solicitor, uh, a nonpolitical appointee, Malcolm Stewart, who in the first argument said eventually that, yes, government could uh, could ban those books.
1: Well, yes. So I was I was reading this in uh, Floyd Abrams' book and reading the exchange um, yesterday. So the former Solicitor General and now Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan in Citizens United tried to make up for um, her colleague Malcolm Stewart's answer from the first time Citizens United um, was argued, but she still kind of said, yes, we, we could do this, but we pinky swear um, we won't. But and and
2: that, it's at that point that Chief Justice Roberts said, we don't uh, leave our constitutional rights to the whims of bureaucrats.
1: Yeah, the we pinky promise we won't is is not good enough.
0: <laughs> well, great job. I, I think you got, what, three out of four, so that's pretty good. Um, so thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud.
2: This was pretty advanced. I think it might have been 202 this time.
0: <laughs> um, you can also follow us on Twitter at Tiffany H. Bates and at E.H. Slattery. We want to thank our guest, Ilya Shapiro, for joining us today. And we're going to leave you this week with a short clip of one of the Slant's songs called Sakura Sakura.